Good morning. You guys sound good this morning. How are you today? Yeah, are you well? Are you well, really? All right. What a wonderful, eventful week this has been for for me and and I, I trust for you as well. I was just so encouraged by the beginning of our um, Trophies of Grace series last Sunday, and as I talked with you, and at least with many of you, and um, I, I just sensed, I think we sensed together that, that God was with us and among us in, in an unusual way, in a wonderful way, almost in a tangible way, and, uh, and that is just a gift uh, from God, and so we're very, very thankful for that. Um, Monday... I started school again, uh, began my first class, taking just one class this semester, um, Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life. Uh, My professor is Dr. Donald Whitney. Uh, We actually have a number of books by Don Whitney uh, in our church library, and I'm sure Jeannie would be more than glad to uh, help you uh, if you wanted to follow along. I actually want to talk a little bit more about my, my class in subsequent weeks, but just to give you a little bit of heads up in terms of that's where I am. Thursday, we began our Young Married's Life group. What a great beginning that was as five of us couples got together at Tim and Barbara's home and, and just began to kind of center around the Word and, um, and uh, ask God to speak into our marriages. And it was a, a wonderful, wonderful beginning. And then Friday, and I'm just sharing this, these things with you for the purpose of encouragement and prayer you know, Sally and I, we've kind of, you've heard me say that, that, we, that, that we just really believe that God, when we moved a year and a half ago, we really believe that God led us to where we are. And, and our prayer was, God, help us to, to minister to our neighbors and to be part of what you're doing there in that community. And somehow, honestly, we fell into this neighborhood dinner program. That's not a program. It's just, you know, Six or eight couples get together every month from the church, from outside the church, believers and unbelievers alike, and, and, uh, and we just share dinner and conversation and games, and, and we've gone now a couple of times into some other functions, and we just really sense that God is, uh, God is there. We know that, and, uh, and it's a wonderful opportunity. And so that was a great thing in, in that um, continue to meet new people, People who, some of them think like you, and some of them have an entirely different perspective on life. And, uh, and so we're just prayerful that God's going to bring fruit from that in our lives and uh, in the lives of others. And then I'm just really excited to be here with you this morning and uh, ask that you take your Bible and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. And as we turn to Ephesians 2, I want, I want you to know that I believe that today's message can change your life. And not just your life generally, in the general sense, but, but, but every single day of your life. It's a bold claim 
I know. But if I did not believe it, truly believe it, it would hardly be worth your time or mine. And to be clear, it is not my message. Rather, it's a message put forth in the pages of Holy Scripture. It is a message from God for you and for me, one that calls for response, a message of good news for people like us in need of good news. You see, there are certain truths that cannot be ignored. We live in a fallen world. And we live in a fallen world because we are fallen people. And to say that we are fallen people in a fallen world reference is to reference the fall itself, that fateful occasion uh, when humanity turned from God in selfish ambition and lost the greatest gift ever. Life with God in perfect fellowship, perfect relationship. Sin entered the world and with it came death and the effects of sin and death remain and multiply to this very day. You and I, being part of the human race, share in this great fall. It's not someone else's problem. It's ours. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Without God, we are dead in our sin, enslaved by our sins, and, and rightly condemned as sinners. This is our human condition, which subjects us, justifiably so, to the just wrath of God. This is the point being made in the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2, which we considered last week. This is what we were and are without God. Dead, enslaved, condemned. But thankfully, the passage does not end there. It begins with what we were without God, but moves quickly to the work of God. It moves to describe God who is merciful and gracious, who, who loves us beyond measure, and who has done a great work in us and for us, a work worth celebrating. Listen, the Christian message to the world is that though we were dead in sin, enslaved by sin, and condemned as sinners, God Himself has given us life everlasting in and through Jesus Christ our Lord. And because God has rescued us from sin and death to new life in Christ, we are free to celebrate and savor Him today, tomorrow, and the next, and on into eternity. So let's read it together. Ephesians chapter 2. Again, we'll read verses 1 through 10. And then this morning, we're going to take just a closer look at verses 4 through 7. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Father, we thank you for this time we have now in your word, in and around your word, under the authority of your word, and we pray that you would now speak from your word into even the deepest recesses of our lives. that you would speak to each life here, each man and woman, regardless of background or circumstance, will you speak to each one of us that we may know him who is life and have life to the full. We ask it through Christ. Amen. I can think of no better way to summarize the good news of the Christian message than in the meaning and, and implication of these two words that, that, that we find at the start of verse 4, but God. But, of course, is a conjunction that distinguishes one thing from another. It, it does two things, really. It connects and it contrasts. It connects with what was just said, and then it contrasts, or it, it connects with what was just said by contrasting it with what is about to be said. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, unable to do anything about it, but God made you alive together with Christ. You were enslaved by the world and, 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 and its way, which stands opposed to God. You were enslaved by the devil himself and this devilish spirit of the age and, and by your own carnal desires, but 
God has set you free from bondage in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You were a child of wrath, guilty, justly condemned, subject to divine punishment, but God has instead treated you with mercy, with grace, and with love beyond measure. God is rich in mercy, declares verse 4. To say that God is merciful is to say that He is compassionate. That He looks upon you in your desperation and He takes pity on you. He understands you. He understands the severity of your need and He ministers to you with compassion. And not just not just a little bit of compassion, not just some compassion, not just uh, a compassion of some kind, some little little microscopic kind, but rather but rather plentiful compassion. He's rich in mercy. He is abundantly merciful. What God what makes God's mercy even more astounding is that he's compassionate with us even though our sins were a direct affront to him. It's not like we just wronged another and God came alongside us and took pity on us. We wronged him. And he took pity on us. Compassionate. Merciful. It's like the bishop in Les Mis who did not hold Jean Valjean's thievery against him, but instead was compassionate with him. Understood him understood his need. God has been merciful. And when we at last reach our eternal home and are with God in perfect union, perfect fellowship, free from the presence of sin as well as its power and penalty, we shall have a thousand strings to our harps, writes Tozer but the sweetest may well be the one tuned to sound forth most perfectly the mercy of God. For what right will we have to be there? We who earned banishment shall enjoy communion. We who deserve the pains of hell shall know the bliss of heaven. Why is God so merciful toward us? Why so compassionate? Because He loves us, notice. Because of His great love with which He loved us. 
Now, given what Paul said in verses 1 through 3, that we were dead in sin, enslaved by sin, uh, condemned because of sin, isn't it striking that the next words from his pen are words of love? We could have expected words of anger, right? Words of punishment, words of wrath, words of of disappointment, great disappointment, would not have caused any alarm. Even cold and uncaring words, words of indifference, might have fit nicely given what was said in those first three verses, but instead we find words of love. It's striking. And we've all experienced love in some way, even if only on a human level. Love between friend and friend. Between parent and child. Between husband and wife. You know, each of the couples in that young married's life group testified this last Thursday to the unique joy of marital love. And they're part of the group because of love, because they value their marriage and want to grow in love. Andre, he can testify Just ask him. He can testify to the unique joy of premarital love as he and Becky are counting the days to their wedding. To be loved is to be valued, welcomed, accepted, even honored. Love brings character and color to a grayscale life. So if we know the benefits of human love, how much sweeter is the experience of divine love toward us? If imperfect human love brings such joy, how much greater the joy that springs forth from the perfect love of God? You know, I think, I think we sometimes downplay God's love for us by couching it in the context of His glory. Let me explain. As if the only, as if God is only concerned for His glory and He loves us only as a means to His glory. And yet here, love is not merely the means, it is the end in that it is the motivating factor behind God's mercy and grace. And of course, He receives glory in this, as we read later. Of course, we glory in Him because of this, but the praise of His glory and His prevailing love for us are not mutually exclusive. And as I get to talk with many of you, even many of you believers who've walked with the Lord for years, 
I know that some of you just need to be reminded of God's great love for you. God loves you. Now, when did God do this? When was his love made manifest among us? Well, it was when we got our act together, right? It was when we cleaned ourselves up and we made ourselves presentable. It was when we earned back his favor. Wasn't it then? Wasn't it, wasn't it then when we resuscitated ourselves, when we dug ourselves uh, out from the grave, when we pulled ourselves up and we started obeying God? Wasn't it then? Isn't that what it says? Isn't that when God began to love us? Oh, okay, now I'll love you. Was it then? No. No, it says that God loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. Listen, that's grace. This speaks to, to the grace of God. We were lost. We were fallen. We were entirely incapable of doing anything about it. We had nothing to offer God. And it was then, right smack in the middle of our defiance and disobedience, that God acted in love toward us. God shows His love for us, says Romans 5, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's grace. Grace means you did nothing to earn God's favor, that you couldn't earn His favor, but He loved you nonetheless. Grace speaks to God's kindness, God's generosity, God's desire to give you what you could never earn or deserve. If mercy, if God's mercy is not giving you what you do deserve, God's grace is giving you what you don't deserve. So again, when Valjean stole the silver and the bishop didn't hold, him, hold it against him, that's mercy. But then when the bishop gave him the candlesticks too. That's grace. God's mercy and grace are two sides of the same coin, and His love is the coin itself. Love is the cord that binds His mercy and grace together. It's the motive that operates between the two. God demonstrates His great love for us by, by tending to us with mercy on one hand and grace on the other. I love you. I love you. I love you. Mercy on one hand. Grace on the other. I love you. And Paul uses just two words, just two words, but God 
to transition from the wrath of God to the love of God, from death and condemnation to life and complete acceptance. They are small words, but but don't they carry enormous weight? They underscore what God has done. And what exactly has God done? Verses 5 and 6 tell us, they say that He has made us alive with Christ. He has raised us with Christ. And He has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. That we were made alive together with Christ refers to new birth to being born again, to regeneration. Please hear this. A true Christian is someone who has been regenerated. We cannot merely reform the old nature We need an entirely new nature. This is what it means to be born again. Being born again is, is not just associating with Christians or belonging to a Christian church or merely saying a Christian prayer. Being born again that God means that God Himself has awakened you from spiritual death to new life. It means that in Christ, you are in fact a new creation. He has made you alive together with Christ, it says. By grace, you have been saved. It's like your birthday. Follow along with me. What control did you have over your birthday? None, right? You had nothing to do with your birth. No no control over your conception. No control over your growth and development within the womb. No control over, over, over where you were born or to whom. You were simply born. And what's more, on the day of your birth, you were the most exhausting, the most controlling, the most needy you've ever been. You were the smallest and weakest person in the room. You were the least intelligent person in the room. The most demanding of them all. And yet, strangely, wonderfully, you were the main event. You were the one person everyone wanted to see. And every year, the day on which your sheer existence is celebrated most is your birthday. People recognize you and they gather in your honor. They make you your favorite foods. They take you to your favorite restaurant. They give you presents and they write nice notes on cards. They serve you and they even sing to you. And you did nothing to earn it. It was all freely 
given. That's grace, humanly speaking. A birthday is grace, and it's the same with your spiritual birth. By grace, you were saved from death to life. By grace, you were born again. By God's grace alone, you were made alive together with Christ and raised up with Him. Jesus Christ united Himself to you in His death, dying for you and bearing your sins, and He united you to Himself in His resurrection and lives with you today. The point is that God still performs resurrection, resurrections. Christ was raised and He has raised you with Christ. He has reached down to where ruined, miserable, desperate sinners are living, all of them dead in their sins, and He raises them to new life. The the point here is that new birth brings new life. This becomes even more clear when considering the context uh, in which this claim is made. We, we, We won't... We won't look at this, but I encourage you to do this. Chapter 1 closed with a prayer by which Paul wants us to know the hope of our call, the hope of God's call upon our lives. He wants us to know the rich inheritance that awaits us in heaven. And he wants us to know above all the surpassing greatness of God's power which is available to us even today. And then, as a supreme demonstration of this power, he points to the raising of Jesus Christ from the dead and the exalting of Christ over all, and he further demonstrates that that power by saying that we are raised and exalted with him. In other words... Just as Jesus died for sin and God raised Him, you were dead in sin when God raised and exalted you with Him. He seated you, seated us with Christ in the heavenly places, not will be raised or will be seated as though pointing only to some future event, but raised and seated presently as though it's already occurred. What does this mean? That we are, that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, even right now, means that you have a new identity. No longer a child of wrath, but now a child of God. Dearly loved, you are in Christ, you are with Christ, and that's what makes you Christian. We bear His great name, that supreme name that God has exalted over every name. Jesus Christ, who identified with us in in His incarnation, has now made us to identify with Him in glory. Did you hear that? I want you to hear that. Jesus Christ identified with us in His incarnation, and now He has made us to identify with Him in His exaltation. 
He takes us as undeserving as we are and He makes us partakers of glory. Hallelujah. So God loves you beyond measure. He's united you with Christ. He's merciful and gracious and this great love so generously given is not just a gift for today. It is a gift for today. But it is not only a gift for today, but a beautiful display for all eternity. For we are made alive, we are raised, we are seated with Jesus, verse 7, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now this so that statement here in verse 7 reveals at least two things. First, the God who saves us also secures us forever. The words in the coming ages point forward to ages to come, to the future, to eternity future. And they assure that if you have experienced the great love of God, you will most certainly remain in His love. If God were, would treat you with such love while you were His enemy, will He not keep you in love now that you are His child? If God did this while you were dead in sin, you can be sure that having been made alive with Christ, He will not let you go. You are saved by grace, and by grace you are held secure forever. The second thing, revealed in verse 7, and this just recently hit me. It's actually the reason that, that, uh, that I've called this series what I have. The second thing revealed in verse 7 is that God celebrates His grace. He delights in His grace. He intends to show the world, indeed the entire universe, the riches of His grace. He underlines, He circles, He highlights, He emphasizes, He magnifies His glorious grace. Listen, God wants His grace to be seen and known. Therefore, make it known. Make it known to those inside the church, to fellow believers. Participate in grace together. Be gracious with each other. Love one another. Forgive one another. Show compassion to one another. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Don't be someone or something you're not. Be honest with who you were and who you are and who you are becoming by the grace of God. And employ those gifts of grace that God has given to you to edify each other and to build the church up in love. You know, 1 Peter 4 says that each of us has received a gift 
Therefore, use it to serve one another as good stewards of what? Of God's varied grace. Celebrate grace by serving as good stewards of grace. And then celebrate grace with those outside the church as well, with those who so desperately need grace. That's my prayer. That's, that's the prayer behind, that's just the prayer that's, that's kind of driving and, behind, and, and, and rests behind this neighborhood dinner club that Sally and I are part of. It's this prayer that when I'm talking with people and playing games with people and sharing a meal with people, it's this prayer that's, that's just kind of always recircling and saying, God, help me to minister grace, your grace to this person who so needs it. Lord, I can't make it happen. Lord, I can't manipulate the conversation. It's not up to me, but Lord, I want to be willing. Make me more willing, Lord. Make me more willing. Sally's very willing. I can learn a lot from my wife. I have learned a lot. Lord, make me more willing to sit down with someone who I do not know and just strike up a conversation. Would you use me, Lord, just to be a dispenser of grace in that environment? If you're in Christ, you are a trophy of grace. You are. This wonderful display for all to see the great, great love of God. That's what a trophy is supposed to do. A trophy is a display. It's a celebration. It's a celebration of achievement. And in this context, it's meant to be seen and shared and to say, look at what God has done. Look at how He's reached down into my life, as undeserving as I was. Look at the life I now share with Jesus. Now God has raised and exalted me with Him. It's to say, look and see the love of God. Look, look and see the God of love. See how merciful and gracious He is. This is our message. This is our message. This is our message to a desperate and dying world. It's a message of hope. And all around us are people whose hearts ache and who struggle for hope. And apart from Christ, they remain dead. They remain enslaved. They remain condemned, separated from God, alienated from the life of God. And we come to them and we say, but God... 
But God, but God we declare, but God we assure. Listen to me, but God being rich in mercy, do you hear me? Because of his great love with which he loved us. Are you paying attention even when we were dead in our trespasses? God made us alive in Christ. God made me alive in Christ and listen to me. He can do the same for you. You don't need to be an expert evangelist. And God doesn't need you. We know that. Right? Jesus said, I can make even the rocks cry out. But according to his perfect wisdom, it's the call he's placed upon us. It is the Great Commission. Share your story. The story of God's love for you, the story of His mercy and grace in your life. And I'm excited to be able to give you an example of that this morning. where we get to hear the story of a woman who is a living, breathing trophy of grace. A woman we are privileged to know and love and who is known and loved by God. And so I just direct your attention to the screens. I think you'll be blessed. This has been interesting because even since I first was writing it out, um, I have thought more about my early church life, which I never really considered that I had. Um, but my grandmother would take my sisters and I to church every Sunday. It was a Lutheran church. And I went there until I was 10. and. What I remember from it is that they never really taught the love of God. They taught about God. Um, they taught about Jesus, but never connecting the two people. And um, so when I turned 10, I realized the story wasn't going anywhere. So why continue going? So I told my parents I wasn't going to go anymore. And that was it for me. From that point on, my life just became all about whatever was happening at the moment. Um, just living life in any way that I wanted to. What do you do when you're 10? Um, you don't get into that much trouble. Um, but things fell apart just before I was 14 when my older sister was killed in a car accident. And that was the first time since I was 10 that I thought about God again. Um, and that became just complete anger at God. My mother began um, drinking. My dad withdrew to work. And I, at that time I had a younger sister and a younger brother, much younger brother. 
and we just kind of went our separate ways. We moved around. I went to three high schools, which was really hard for me um, because I never really felt comfortable um, putting myself out there to make friends. And so I tended to just connect with whoever paid me attention. And unfortunately, it was the, the wrong kind of crowd. I ended up um, getting involved with people who were involved with drugs. And in those days, it was primarily marijuana um, and speed. And um, so I never really liked participating in it, but in order to be continuing the friendship, that meant that you kind of needed to do what they were doing. And my parents finally put their foot down and I was not allowed to see any of my friends at all, which I kind of was glad about, but unfortunately the only people around were the neighborhood kids. So I got involved with the boy down the street and uh, I ended up pregnant at 16. And I never told my parents about it and I just went and got an abortion because that's what was expected. Um, that's just what you did. And um, that was another time when I really felt that God was real, but my anger was still there. And now I just felt like I was being condemned by him because I knew that what I had done was the most wrong thing that I could ever do. And um, then I had to live with that. I, I, I can't even verbalize the feelings I had about what God must be thinking of me. So shove that aside. Um, not going to think about it anymore. And my life went on. And the only way I knew how to resolve what I was feeling about how wrong that was, was to marry the person that I had been with. Um, totally against my parents' um, wishes. So when I was 18, I married him. I thought I was just going to be living a happy life, become a mother again, and be a wife, but that was not in the plan, and proceeded to live a life of hell because I didn't really know him and he was very involved in the drug scene um, even as a dealer and all these things were new to me so I ended up um, in a physically abusive relationship and finally after two years I walked away from that and um, just went right into another abusive relationship. So um, after two marriages and two divorces, um, I started to decide I needed something more in my life. And I could not believe that this was all there was to life. So I went and got a job that I enjoyed doing and um, moved to the Monterey Peninsula where I 
became really close friends with my best friend today. Our relationship, my relationship with my friend, uh, became strained because she had found Jesus. And I didn't know what to do with that because of the anger that I still had toward God and who was this Jesus. So um, she continued to spend time with me and was always carrying her Bible with her, always wanted to talk about Jesus. And so we would spend hours arguing because I could not believe that there could be any truth in what she was telling me. So finally, um, I went down to her sister's wedding to Monterey, and I knew that in my heart that I was going to have to stop seeing her because it, I couldn't deal with this. Um, but I had known her sister and the life that she had led, and apparently she had found Jesus too. So um, seeing this wedding ceremony and the pastor and the things that he was saying was just eye-opening to me. And I thought that there was something here that God was trying to say to me. So after the wedding, um, we went to church the next day at, at my friend's church. Again, everything was being spoken to my heart. And the pastor gave an invitation for whoever wanted to receive Christ to raise their hand. And we were all closing our eyes, so I thought it was safe, and so I did. Um, but then he said that he wanted everyone who rose, raised their hand to come forward. And that was too intimidating for me, so I wasn't moving. But the lady that was sitting next to me, I guess had peaked because she said, you raised your hand. And she urged me to stand up and go forward, which I did. And I was kind of in a daze. I didn't know what it all meant. I knew that something was different. There was something that had changed in me that very moment. Um, I didn't know what, but I didn't feel anger anymore. It was just instant. And um, the pastor was really great in that he took me aside and um, just shared the love of Jesus with me. And um, that moment changed my life. The problem was that I was still living in the Bay Area, and I did not have a church, um, and I was still surrounded by the temptations of life that was all I knew. Um, no one in my family could accept this change that had taken over in me. I decided to quit my job and um, move down to Monterey. Uh, to live with my friend and her new roommate and um, start attending the church there. But during that time, um, completely unexpectedly, God brought my future husband into my life 
and that was a real surprise to me because after all that I had done and all the things that I had been through, I didn't think that I could ever find love, real love. But I found it with God and and He showed me how human people um, can show love too. Um, I didn't realize once Joe and I got married how much healing that I really needed and had ignored. And so for the first few years of our marriage, I went through a lot of um, trying to figure out who I was in Christ um, in studying the Word. It was helpful, but I still needed, um, I still wasn't able to forgive myself for things that I had done, especially as you're reading the Word and you know how hurtful that type of life is to God and the things that you have done um, to someone that you now love. So it took a lot of years for me to heal. My husband put up with a lot. And just then having two wonderful children. And it was when um, our son was born that my family finally accepted the path that I was on and they were wonderful. They were wonderful with both of our kids. Every day um, as I walk through this life, and it's been 30 years, it just amazes me, 30 years, and God teaches me something new every day. Um, I am blessed every morning when I wake up and just feel His love by the life that I have, the people that I know, um, the way that He shows that He loves me in just little things throughout every day, um, little surprises, um, phone calls, a note in the mail, um, just the sunrise, the sunset, I, I just cannot believe how blessed I am considering the life that I came from. And um, even after 27 years of marriage, I am amazed how it gets better every day. There were times when I wondered, but um, my kids are grown, we're all healthy. I, I can't even imagine how it could be any better, but yet every day it does get better. I don't know, I don't know what more I can say. I cannot believe how blessed I am considering the life I came from.
That's it. That's it. That's the glad cry of the person who has experienced the, the love of God, or better yet, who knows the God of love personally. Maybe, maybe like Jan, you've experienced tragedy in your life. Maybe your family has been or was shaken to the core and, and the aftershock left significant damage. Maybe, maybe you're, you're looking for relationship, you're longing for acceptance, but, but you're leaving a string of broken relationships. Maybe, maybe you regret past decisions and the grief remains even to this day. Maybe you're here today and you question if God could ever love you truly love you. Again, not love in some general sense, but truly love you. You look at your life and you see just how far you've fallen and you hear of God's love and you wonder to yourself, do these words apply to me? Have I fallen too far? Far far beyond the reach of even of God's love. And for Jan and many others in this room, I just want to assure you that God's love is not some airy-fairy emotional mush. It is, it, it is, it is acceptance where there was none. It is forgiveness where there was only guilt. It is a new lease on life. It is life. It is life. It is healing when there was brokenness. It is joy where there was only sadness. It was purpose where there wasn't any. And so as Jan testified, her husband, even today, her husband, her children, her family, they're all evidences of God's love for her. Her church family her friendships, meaningful service, they all point to God's love for her. I can't imagine how it could get any better, she said. And yet every day, it does get better. And so whoever you are, whatever your background, whatever your circumstance today, will you not cast all your cares on God who so cares for you? Will you not entrust your entire life 
to Jesus Christ. Will you not call upon him as Lord? Will you not remember? Because God has rescued us from sin and death to new life in Christ, will you not remember that you are free to savor and celebrate Him today and forever? I said at the beginning that I believe this message can change your life and every single day of your life. And so I'm asking you to entrust your life to the Lord God Almighty. Father, thank you for these precious moments. Thank you for speaking to us even this morning through your word, and then through personal testimony. Thank you for these people. I trust that many of them are already just grand recipients of your love. And I pray that today this would be just a reminder, an encouragement, a necessary encouragement for each and every day of their life And I pray that they would stand, that we would stand as these trophies of grace, declaring, celebrating your grace for all to see. I pray for those who may be among us this morning who know you or have thought of you only in an impersonal way, but have never truly come to know you personally. Might you draw them Minister to them and save them even today. We ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen.